Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, we are ending our Practicing the Practices sermon series today. As Justin mentioned, we'll start a new sermon series on angels next Sunday that I'm really excited about, but would like to just put a bow on this series and cover one more practice. Uh, The practice that we want to cover this morning is the practice of service, and I thought that I would start by reading from Matthew 20, verse 28. We have read this so many times through the course of this sermon series, but here we are one more time. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This idea of service is something that Jesus not only models beautifully, but teaches so masterfully on. And this morning, I want us just to see his words on service, his ways on service, and even his why on service. And I think that it will help perhaps propel us to have deeper lives of humble service to those that are around us. So let's start with the words of Jesus. Matthew 23 is where I invited you to. Verse number one says this, Jesus spake to the multitude and to his disciples. And here's what he said. The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat was an actual seat that was in the synagogues this would have been the place where like the preacher sat. It was the place where the one who exposited the scriptures would sit. We would maybe say it this way. The scribes and the Pharisees want to be behind the pulpit. They, they are those people that are, that are teaching. Verse three, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and they do not. So when they are expounding the scriptures, they actually have a lot of good advice. They're not telling you things that are ill-founded all of the time. Like what they're telling you to do is good, but they talk the talk and don't walk the walk. They will tell you to do the stuff, but they will not do it in their own life. And I will say that there's a brief part of me as a pastor that's sympathetic to the scribes and Pharisees here because I know how difficult it is oftentimes to tell a church body to do something, but then to live it out in your own life. But there was this, not just like little bit of a gap, but this large gap between what was ideal, what people should do and what was real and what the scribes and Pharisees actually did. And Jesus said, I don't want your life to be like that. Here he is in verse number four. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Right? You carry the weight, not me. You abide by all these rules, not me. You do the work, not me. And there's this inconsistency between their teaching and their practice. Verse number five, but all their work. So when they actually do something, So they really don't do a lot. They tell you to do, but they don't. But when they do, they do it to be seen of men. So here they are self-promoting. 
Here they are looking for the glory for themselves. Their motivations are impure. And Jesus actually begins to articulate this. In the first century, this was popping up in three different venues. One was their dress. uh, One was actually the titles that they used for people. And then one was these places that they would sit at these meals. Here he says in verse 5, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, phylacteries isn't a word that you would use every day, right? What is a phylactery? Is that like a factory that Phil made or what are they doing here? A phylactery, you can still see these actually, if you just Google it or if you even go to Israel, you'll see some Orthodox Jews that will have this. Little box, almost think of like a, a piece of furniture for a dollhouse or something that is bound up by leather and inside of this box is a little tiny portion of the scriptures and that would be bound almost like a miner's uh, spotlight that you would put around your head and it's right there. You put this box or it would be bound in these leather straps around their arm. And you say, well, why would they put a box with tiny scriptures on their head and, and bind this around their arm? There was a reason, Deuteronomy 6, 8, if you want to make a note of it, God told the children of Israel that they should take his words and his commands and they would, quote, bind them for a sign upon thy hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And there was this overly literal application of that to literally put them in between your eyes and, and bind them on your arms. And he said they do this, but they're doing this to be seen of men. They're doing this because they want to be thought of as spiritual. They want to be thought of as someone that you should respect or you should give credence to. And they're doing it for all of the wrong reasons. Verse 6, and they love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue. So that Moses seat, right? They love this. They want the position. They want to be the guest of honor. They want to be at the quote-unquote head of the table. They're vying for these positions. They're wanting the prestige. They're wanting to be flashy. Verse 7, and greetings in the markets to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. So they want these titles that underline their position and their power and their prestige. Verse 9, I don't want you to be like this. Call no man excuse me, eight, be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all are brethren. And I love this verse. This is not a popularity contest. We are not looking to establish this giant pecking order. We are not wanting to create this structure where there's this giant org chart and you keep going, going, going down. No, no, no. If you're looking for an org chart or you're looking for a pecking order, Christ is the master, I am the teacher, I am the rabbi, I am the one that's in charge, then under me, all are brethren. You, you guys are a family, you are brothers. I don't want this multi-tiered, layered approach with all these positions and titles. I want you to be a family, but I am the one who's in charge and is leading. Verse 9, similarly, call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Father would be this term that was reserved for the really venerable patriarchs. So if you've ever heard Abraham referred to as Father Abraham, maybe even sang the song in junior church growing up, Father Abraham. Why are we saying Father Abraham? It was this, this term that was not just of endearment, but of respect to the big patriarchs. Don't do that. Number 10, 
neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So this whole thing, whether you're talking about rabbi or father or master, is I want to get rid of this pecking order. I don't want you to be vying or jockeying for these positions or these titles that come with all of this respect. Like, that's not what I want. Is he literally saying, you can't call anyone father? Like, your own dad, call him dad. Dad's an okay word, but father is a, is a dirty word. Don't say father. Don't celebrate Father's Day. Celebrate dad day. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying that they are wanting all these titles to be heaped upon them. Do not be that guy. Right, and this, this has taken shape in different ways. You would still have in a Catholic tradition the idea of father so-and-so, that maybe that's a title. Maybe it's more in a Baptist uh, vein that it would be, you call them reverend or preacher or something like that. Uh, perhaps it's something that's just your education where you've reached a doctorate and you insist that everyone call you doctor. Do not call me Mark. Do not call me Mr. Mark. Call me Dr. Likens. That's the proper term for me. We have it in different ways now, but you get the idea of people that are so just set on wanting all of this deference because of what you call them or what their title is. And Jesus is saying, please stop. Don't do this. Verse 11, he that is the greatest. Look, you're looking for seats. You're looking for titles. You're looking for all this stuff. You're looking to be great. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. I love this verse because Jesus weighs in on the goat debate. And we have these, these debates in our culture all the time. We actually preached a sermon series some years ago uh, from a similar parallel passage, and we entitled it Goat, uh, Greatest of All Time. If you're like, I don't know what goat means, greatest of all time. But we, we have these debates. I actually thought I would bring a couple with me this morning, and, and you could help me figure out uh, perhaps which of these is the actual clear winner in the goat debates. But uh, cereals? Two best-selling cereals of all time, and I'm going to need you to, to participate with me and help me, okay? Two best-selling cereals of all time, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Honey Nut Cheerios. Now, if you're like, no, Honey Bunches of Oats, listen, it didn't make the list. I'm sorry. You only got two options. Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Honey Nut Cheerios. And I, I want to cheer. I want to clap. I want, if you believe on your side, then I want to hear it, okay? Team Cinnamon Toast Crunch, where you at? That's... <laughs> Standing ovation from Tim. Sue, both hands. Praise him for Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Hun Team Honey Nut Cheerios, where are you at? Wow. That's very close. I thought like the sugar from Cinnamon Toast Crunch was going to amp you guys up, but uh, that's very close. Great cereals, right? The, there's a, a constant goat debate in sports, which is in, in basketball. Who's the best, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? We, we, took, we took a vote. Hold on, we'll get your chance. <laughs> I almost said, I'm in charge here, but I think Jesus was just like, don't try to be in charge. <laughs> Let's do raise of hands, okay? Raise of hands. Who's on the LeBron side of this? LeBron's the best basketball player of all time, okay? We got a few. We got a few. Derek feels very strong about this. Let's see, let's see the Michael Jordan side of this, okay? Derek, I don't know if Derek wants to be a part of the church anymore. He just joined. He's going to leave, like, after this service. I think the most important goat debate out of all of them is actually in regards to house pets. And you know I'm not a pet guy at all. 
But I don't, I don't want to say a word. I don't want to influence, like, the conversation. I don't want to somehow, like, make you vote a certain way or whatever. But I just, I'll let it just be an unbiased, you know, vote. We have cats versus dogs, right? So who, who, what's so funny? Who would vote? I'm not saying a word. I'm not saying a word. Okay? Who's on Team Dog? Come on, let me hear you. Team Cats? We will pray for you. We will pray for you. Listen, it's, it's fun to have those conversations. It really is. But the, the truth of what Jesus said is that, like, you want to be the goat? Like, you want to be the greatest? Here's how you be the greatest. He that is greatest among you, be a servant. Sir, what words to think about being the greatest is the one who serves. Verse number 12, here's what he says. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. This is how it works in God's economy. You want to promote yourself. You want to be big. Give it some time. You will be humbled. You say, I know some people and they were all about themselves and they seem to get, get away with it all through life. Listen, that ego ain't gonna serve them well when they bow the knee before Jesus one day. You will, you will be humbled. But those that will humble themselves, those that are abased, those that serve, those are the ones that will be exalted. Now, those, those are Jesus's words. I could give you so many, but that's one little snippet of his teaching on what it means to be a person of greatness, to serve humbly other people. Now, a question that is a fair question, and if you know the life of Jesus, you automatically know the answer. But a fair question is, well, did Jesus walk the walk? I mean, the scribes and Pharisees, he was like, they'll tell you to do all this stuff, and it's really good, but they won't actually do it themselves. Did Jesus do what he advocated that his disciples would do? And of course, we know it's yes. We see him serving when he's healing those people. We see him serving when he's feeding those people when he's raising someone from the dead, when he's teaching all along the way, but maybe the best example you could ever get of Jesus serving is in the cross. And this is exactly what Paul says when he advocates to New Testament churches and New Testament believers that we would take on the mind of Christ and that we would serve others and put them before ourselves. He, he goes back to where he should go, to the cross of Jesus. Listen to Philippians 2, or you can even turn there if you would like to. Philippians 2, Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Don't be like those scribes and Pharisees that were wanting all the glory for themselves. No, 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 no. Don't do it that way. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Put other people first. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't be self-absorbed. Look at other people and their needs. And let this mind be in you, who was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And what a phrase. That Jesus did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. Said, what do you mean, think it was robbery? It is impossible to rob yourself when you own something already. If you already possess it, you're not, you're not robbing it. So I have a phone here. 
And I oftentimes will give this to my children. They'll ask me, hey, can, can I see your phone? Brennan likes to check the scores. Uh, Deacon likes to play a little Sonic game. So Deacon, who's four, say I give him my phone. And as parents or grandparents, you know how that goes sometimes when you give your phone to your child or your grandchild for some reason. And then eventually you want it back, right? It's your phone. Hey, give me my, give me my phone back. And if you don't have proper training, it's very possible that that becomes like a terrorist negotiation, right? <laughs> and you're like bargaining, like I'll give you five pieces of candy for my phone back, six, it, trying to, trying to co coerce them and convince them. But we've, I think, done a decent job with our children of like, hey, give me my phone back, and they give it to me. Why? Because it's mine. And don't you be sad, and don't you think I'm mean, and don't you, do not treat me like I'm robbing you when I am taking my phone back, it's mine. I'm not robbing you, right? Jesus didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. He was already God. So there is no robbery. There is nothing fraudulent happening. When we talk about Jesus being equal with God, that is, that is fair, that is valid. He has always been God. So this God-man, Jesus, listen to the words, made himself of no reputation, he took upon him the form of a, you guessed it, servant. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Best illustration I've ever heard on this is that of a ladder. Justin, if you don't mind helping me, we're gonna pull out a ladder here and try to help explain this. Here is Jesus who is God. Now, admittedly, this illustration will fall a little bit short because if I was to take, say, put God at the top there, top step, well, how many rungs in the ladder are there between God and angels or God and man? Well, an infinite number. But for sake of the illustration, as silly as it, as it may be, we'll say that this is divinity. This is God. Now, I'm not going to stand all the way up there, okay? We'll say a couple rungs down is that of being an angel, Psalms tells us that there's kind of this, this tier. There's God is on top of everything, but then there's the created order of angels, then men, then, then the animals. So here's an angel. Let's say this is mankind, right? What this is saying is that, and I'll be careful. Justin, you set this up okay? God walks all the way down and becomes man, and not just man, becomes a servant becomes a humble servant, a humble servant who's obedient unto death, not just death, death on a cross. And the idea that Paul is trying to portray is that like you went from the very top to the very bottom. Like it, it doesn't become more humiliating than being someone who is crucified on a cross and he comes all the way down and his ask is that we as humans take a step down and be a servant. And it's such a rational ask. Like if, if our savior will descend the entire ladder, is it that unreasonable to ask us to go down one rung and not just be this like human who can strut sitting down and so about ourselves, but to be on about some other people? and to serve them, and to look up for their interest, 
and to not have self-glorification going on? Like, it's such a reasonable ask, but one that we often struggle with. And what you find is that Jesus' words of go be a servant are modeled in his life that he was a servant, one that was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But there is this why that is affixed to being a servant. If you would notice with me back in Matthew 23, there's a lot of whys, there's a lot of motivations that we could give. But here is the one that is given in Matthew 23 and then echoed in Philippians 2. Verse 12, we read it already. Whosoever exalts himself shall be abased. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. There actually is a net benefit at the end of this. Do I do it exclusively for this reason? No. But do I know that there is a tangible benefit? Yes, and that's if I abase myself, there is exaltation, there is honor, there is glory, there is respect at the end of that road that I will be thought more highly of not only by, by those that are my friends or my family, but maybe even those that I just glancingly come into contact with, that there is exultation that happens at the end of this. And notice in Philippians 2, if you keep reading, this he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Next verse, wherefore God has also highly exalted him. And he's given him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. The idea is that through this humbling and through the serving, there is this exaltation that is so profound. And he says, like, you get to tap into that to a degree. You are not going to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, nor is every knee going to bow to you, but you can serve, and at the end of that servitude does come exaltation, which brings us to a very valid series of questions. Do you want to be a person of greatness? Do you want to be honorable? Do you not only want to be honorable, do you want to be honored? Do you want to be respected? I would dare say that the vast majority, if not all of us, would say yes, 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 and yes. I would love to be honored. I would love to be respected. I would love to be a quote-unquote person of greatness. How do I get there? This is the way. You serve. You serve. You put others first. You say, Pastor, you don't know my family. There ain't no respect that gets divvied around. If you are honorable and if you serve people, you just get walked on. You don't know where I work, okay? I work in a place that is dog-eat-dog, cutthroat, every man for themselves. Being a humble servant in my workplace does not work. It, it doesn't get me a bonus. It doesn't get me a promotion. It doesn't give me any sort of like honor from my boss. It, it doesn't work. Listen, peek around the corner, please. Like, have the ability to get a little bit of foresight and look beyond, like, this year at work or your career at work. And by the way, if your workplace is that toxic, you may want to switch. Like, there are ones that exist that aren't that bad. 
But look beyond your career, look beyond your retirement, like fast forward all the way to your funeral. And you know that you know the answer to this. You, you go live and have a mode of operation of dog eat dog, cut throw, every man for themselves, and fast forward to your funeral. People are not honestly, they may say it dishonestly, but they're not honestly going to get up and talk about how honorable you were and defer honor and respect and admiration on you in that moment. If you even have any friends and family there to celebrate you at all, it's not gonna happen truthfully. But you know that if you will serve other people, you've been to the services of people who actually were humble servants and you know how that went. It was a beautiful service. Look beyond this life. Look into eternity. Listen to the words of Jesus when he tells us that like, if you will give a cup of water in my name, if you will feed someone in my name, if you'll do anything in my name, like I I will see that, I will reward that. Read Matthew 6 where he says, the scribes and Pharisees, they pray and they give their alms and they do all the stuff to be seen of men. But if you'll go give your alms and you'll just serve some other people and take your goods and invest of them, not to be seen of men, but even do it in secret, your father which sees in secret, he will reward you openly. Like there is a reward that comes from that, not puffing up your chest and not trying to be the best all the time, but just trying to serve others. There truly is honor and exaltation there. And it is, it is good for you. It would be enough if Jesus said, listen, just be a servant. Why? Because I said so. It'd be enough. It would be more than enough if he said, look, be a servant. And by the way, let me show you how to be a servant. Let me model it for you. But when he sh- tells you and shows you, and then he starts to connect you back to some whys and back to some motives, there is way more than enough there to be a catalyst for the people of God to go serve others. The household of faith first, according to Galatians, but then beyond the household of faith to love our neighbors and to serve everyone, to even love our enemies, to bless them that curse you to pray for them, which despitefully use you to serve other people. Now, let me help you with maybe some practicality because in each of these, I've wanted to try to take a concept and not just leave it as this ethereal thing that is out there, but try to help manifest it in something that is concrete. And you can choose what's good for you and and what's not. But a few points on how to practically implement this into your life. Number one, make serving a habit. I would not recommend, although this is just a practical piece of advice, I do not have a verse for it, but I would not recommend that you would live your life of service strictly as a tumbleweed being blown around just wherever. You know what? I'll just look for an opportunity, and if one presents itself, I'll serve, but if one doesn't seem to present itself today, then I won't serve. I'll just kind of drift like a leaf in the fall wind and see if I can find an opportunity of service somewhere. Listen, there are so many opportunities that are regular, recurring, and we, as Americans, generally live by our calendars. There are so many things that you can schedule into your life to at least create a baseline of service that you can add to later and be directed, of course, by the Spirit of God, but just to serve as a baseline. I was thinking this week about the the choir and the orchestra team and and just getting excited for, for not just this Sunday and next Sunday morning, but for next Sunday night especially because the concert is just going to be special. But I was thinking about all the time, week after week after week, 
to, to not just show up for church and come early and sing for other people, but to show up again for practices and how that is like a multiple times a week, they are giving of themselves and they're scheduling it. The practice happens at the same time every single Sunday and they're working that as a rhythm into their life of serving other people. Say, no, no, they're in the choir because they love to sing. They're in the choir because they want to worship God. Well, they may love to sing and they may want to worship God, but they're also in the choir to bless you and to serve in that capacity and to help you as the church of God sing more fully. Like they're doing that as service. I was thinking about Randy Soster Sr. I don't know if Randy's in the room this morning. He's back there in the corner as he normally is. And I hate to point you out because if you know Randy, you know that he's not looking for any glory. But as long as I've known Randy and Janice too, Saturdays, mid-morning, Randy's here with a cart and a little bottle of glass cleaning solution and a squeegee and is going from door to door to window to window week after week after week after week. And I've known Randy for eight years and he's been doing it before I knew him. Just showing up and cleaning the glass so that the place looks good and all the little fingerprints from all the little munchkins are, are gone when people come to church. Something you've probably never even thought about that someone does that job. But week after week after week, create a habit of serving. Secondly, though, you do want to be open to other opportunities as they present themselves. I wouldn't recommend this be the only way that you, that you serve, but you don't want to ignore this. You don't want to like forget that there's a spirit of God guiding your life and like spirit of Jesus lead me today. Like cross my path with someone who has a need and, and give me the eyes to see it and give me the courage to, to insert myself and to step up and to serve other people. And if you get your head up a little bit, you'll see it all the time. Third, serve with your family. If you have a spouse, you don't always have to serve with them, but if you can, serve with them. If you have children, man, serve with them. If you have grandchildren, serve with them. I got just tickled pink this week. I looked at some pictures from a team from our church that went down to the Need Cafe in New Kensington. And uh, if you don't know the Need Cafe, they're a nonprofit that largely tries to feed people, but they're, they're very gospel-centered. And they have kind of an exchange program where if people need food, they can come. Uh, they also do some training for people that need a marketable skill set, and, and they help them. And uh, we've been partnered with them for a while. We send them money every month. We help them with a few things. And some years ago, they, uh, they told us that the biggest meal they do every year is their Thanksgiving meal that they do a week or two before Thanksgiving. And I forget who had the idea, because it certainly wasn't me, but someone did. And we said, let's fund it. Like that biggest meal that you do all year, let us cover it. And then let us send the team down and let us go, go serve. And I don't know how many it is, 20, 25, 30, you know, from our church, go down and, uh, and serve. And Scott, if you have a picture of our team, I think they took a group picture while they were down there. I got tickled, not just at them going. And if you give to our missions program at all, thank you because some of that was deployed here a couple weeks ago to, to feed a whole bunch of people and to bless our community. But I, I looked at that picture and I saw families. I saw Don and Diane Andrews, who always sit down there in the first service, serving together as a couple. I saw Glenn and Debbie Hummel serving together as a couple. I saw Eric and Sylvia, who always sit right over here in the first service, serving as a couple. I saw Gary and Elaine and, and Joe and Jamie, but then, I saw Donna Ipolito, who sits right there in the first service. And I saw Donna's daughter, Kristen, 
And then I saw Kristen's kids, right? There was Olivia, and there was Kiera, and there was Luca, and there was Frankie. These three generations, you know, serving together. And I just thought, how beautiful is that? That here are some families that for this one event say, let's go. It's not like they didn't have anything better to do on a, on a Tuesday night. Like they, they could have filled their schedule with something else. They could have studied for, for their homework. They could have, you know, gone and, and had a meal as a family. But let's just go serve other people. I thought, how beautiful is that? To serve others. So if you have a family, serve. If they're real young, you know, the, the old training model, right? I do, you watch. Um, I do, you help. You do, I watch. Then, then you do, and, and you know what I'm talking about. I think I mixed it up. But get, get your youngsters, and you do, and just have them watch. Just have them be there. Then eventually, if they, as they get older, they kind of get a knack for it. I'll do, and you help me. And then eventually turn it over to them. You do a lot of this, and I'll help you. And then eventually, you'll get to the point to where they'll do, and you'll just kind of stand back and watch, and you can divide and conquer. But it's a beautiful thing to serve as a family. Number four, this is a mouthful, and I better read it because I won't say it right. WWJHMD is better than WWJD. See, it certainly doesn't sound better. I know. In 1896... Charles Sheldon wrote his very famous book, In His Steps. And it was from the book, In His Steps, that the question of WWJD, or what would Jesus do, was popularized. And that question kind of had a resurgence in the late 90s when I was in, maybe it was early 2000s, when I was in middle school and people would wear the, the WWJD bracelets. How many of you remember what I'm talking about? The necklaces. And, you know, ask this question, what would Jesus do? Which is a beautiful question in so many ways. But a better question than that is actually, what would Jesus have me do? Like, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. That's not for you. What would Jesus do? Would he have me rent or own? Well, we know what he did. He didn't rent or own. He like couch surfed on his friend's couches because the son of man had no place to lay his head. And he was an itinerant preacher traveling around, like just lodging with people randomly and relying on their hospitality. I don't know that I would recommend that to you. I would recommend probably get a place of your own, whether you rent or, or own it. I'm not so sure that Jesus cares, but what would he have me do is a better question, right? Like, as an itinerant preacher rabbi, that's very different than a mom of three children, right? Like, you're not going to travel the world to share the gospel with people if you're a mom of three young children, even if you would like to leave them and travel the world some days. Like, you're not going to be able to make that exchange. That's not healthy. So, you need to, you need to be able to say, okay, when it comes to service, what would Jesus do? Jesus would serve. What would Jesus have me do? Well, he would have me and you and you and you and you serve. But how would he have me serve? Well, that's very subjective. I, I could definitely give you some, some bullet points through his local church. Sharing the gospel would be in the same vein or neighborhood as service. You could definitely see them corresponding. But you get to answer that for yourself based off of your background and your abilities and your affinities and tendencies, your schedule, the important thing is that you answer that question for yourself and that you begin to implement it for yourself. Next, beware of paralysis by analysis. 
So I've been pastoring long enough that I know you'll give a sermon on something, maybe service, and people get jazzed up. They'll, they'll be ready to go. I mean, they're ready to sign up for every ministry afterwards, and, and you know, they're, they're good to go. But then there's some other people that are like, I want to be sure that I do the right thing. So I'm going to study a little bit. I'm going to pray a little bit. Then I'm going to study some more. Maybe I'll find like an idea in the Bible or something. Then I'm going to pray some more. Then I'm going to go talk to that ministry team leader. Then I'm going to pray some more. Then I'm going to talk to that ministry team leader again. And before you know it, three months have gone by, and you've done nothing because you're just overanalyzing the fire out of it. And you need to know that doing something, even if it's not perfect for your schedule or, or how your life is structured, doing something is better than nothing. And I understand that your schedule may change in six months. Mine too. But do not sit back and say, well, because my schedule could change in six months. I don't know if I want to be a part of it now, so I'll wait six months. Because guess what? Six months later, you're going to say, my schedule could change in six months again. And that'll just keep going and going. And you'll never actually begin to serve or to put this into practice because you just, you're thinking too much about it. So if you don't know automatically what is best, just go try something and do some trial and error and you'll figure it out along the way a lot better than you will just praying about it every day and never putting anything into practice. And by the way, I'm not saying don't pray, but I am saying at a certain point, you gotta stop praying and you gotta start, you gotta start doing. Number six, be prepared to work. So I hope that this goes without saying, especially in blue collar Western PA. And one of the things I love about Western PA is that it is blue collar and that people aren't scared of work. Because ministering in California for five years, there was like a huge segment of the population or church that oftentimes were just allergic to work. And I love that about this culture. I love it. But if, if you're not careful, you can so glamorize service and the impact that it can have that you forget that it's going to be work. So I am big as a pastor and I tell our staff or, or, or our deacons or whoever to do this as well because I think it's so important. When you're talking about serving the Lord, maybe it is cleaning glass like Randy, or maybe it's singing in the choir, or in the nursery, or anywhere. You need to be able to connect what you're doing to the impact it's having on people's lives. Because what you do does have an impact on people's lives. But sometimes you can get so fixated on that that you forget that it's hard work. So I've seen this, for example, as a youth minister in California for five years, we would go to teen camp. And we try to get some chaperones. And getting a chaperone for teen camp is no small task. They have to take a week of vacation off of work. They have to pay some money out of their own pocket. And then they have to be with like junior high boys all week, right? That's, that's not normally the most appealing thing in the world. So you try to help them see, look, this is going to have an impact. Like these young people there are going to be some of them that make decisions this week that will influence the rest of their life. Like there'll be, there'll be young people that are saved because of this week of camp and you're going to spend eternity with them. There are going to be young people that will live for God and their school this year because of the decisions that they make at teen camp. You know, this is important stuff. And it's like, yes, you know, that sounds, that sounds amazing. I want to influence the next generation. And then you forget, oh yeah, I do have four junior high boys under my wing for like 18 hours a day and they do not want to sleep ever. And by Thursday, I just want to pull my hair out or like choke a seventh grader. And, 
You know, you forget that this is work. Our nursery is much that way. Like in our nursery, people are caring for these little ones so that, so that moms and dads, but especially moms can come and can get a break and can sit and can listen and can truly give their, their time and their brain and their attention with a break just to, to the singing of, of God's people and, and worshiping God and listening to the word of God. And it's such a beautiful thing, but you forget, oh, that's the work. Like when you leave the nursery, honestly, you're gonna have like crunched up Cheerios in your pockets and you know, slimy goldfish in your hair and, and like it's, there's, they're little kids. So don't ever forget that when you're serving, while it does have an impact, while there is greatness affixed to it, while there's exaltation at the end of it, never forget serving oftentimes is just rolling up your sleeves and deciding that, you know what, this isn't always the most fun or always the easiest, but it's the best. So I'm going to do it. Number seven, and lastly, if you would like an easy on-ramp to this, I would give you two. Number one is our intro to harvest class that is happening today. We mentioned that, but there's so many just on-ramps to allow you to get connected or even to begin to serve. So I would recommend that class if you've never been to it. But if you have, or maybe you haven't, but it doesn't work out for your schedule or something, you can go on our website. There is a webpage, harvestbaptist.info slash teams. You can see all of our regular recurring teams on Sunday and on our midweek service on Wednesday. There's a few throughout the course of the week, but you can see them all, description of all of them. You can even choose what two or three or four you have interest in and just click it on the webpage. It'll come to our office and we'll get in touch with you and we'll help connect you. Um, that you're not signing a blood oath when you do that, that you're going to serve in that team for forever. All you're saying is I'm interested and we'll get you a test drive. We'll get you on that team. You can shadow, you can see what it's like for a week or two and see if it's a good fit for you. But it may be a really practical next step is to jump on and select one or two of those and to say, hey, I'd, I'd like to begin the journey of serving. Or maybe I already have begun, but I would like to take it up a notch and I would like to serve a little more. With all the practicality out of the way, May we go back for just a minute to the life of Jesus before we take communion together. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And what was the greatest, the most profound act of service? Well, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Or, as Matthew would put it, to give his life a ransom for many. And it is that specific act of service that he would come, that he would live, that he would come humbly, that he would die for us, that truly is like fuel to our fire. That he would love us in that way and serve us in that way. And may we never, ever, ever forget or lose sight of that. Because if you're, if you're serving him without that in mind, you're probably twisting your own arm behind your own back or just white knuckling your behavior. And you truly need to, to know and have this heart of love and gratitude for him that, that serves as like the engine to get you to a place to where you gladly, willingly, joyfully serve other people. So may we take a few moments this morning, both in prayer and in communion, and may we stop and may we remember this. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I recommend as we pray that you would just say thank you, that you would praise him, 
that you would exalt him for dying for you? If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, then man, today can be the day. Cross that line. Call out to him. Tell him that you believe that he died for my sins and yours and put your faith and trust in him right now in this moment. Would you pray with me?